Customs and Border Protection is adding more criminal investigators to its Office of Professional Responsibility, the office in charge of investigating serious misconduct allegations by CBP staff. The office also reviews use of force and critical incidents like in-custody deaths. The agency is using several hiring tools, and for how it's going, Federal News Network's Eric White spoke with the executive director of investigative operations, Dan Altman. Within U.S. Customs and Border Protection, the only office that employs criminal investigators is the Office of Professional Responsibility. And most people might associate uh, OPR with what would be a traditional internal affairs role within a law enforcement agency, investigating allegations of administrative or criminal misconduct on the part of our employees. But we also have a vital role to review incidents that bring into question the transparency and accountability of CBP, such as in-custody deaths, use of force incidents, vehicle pursuits with serious injuries, employee deaths, and other incidents that garner public attention and concern. And so our special agents have really two roles. One is to investigate serious misconduct, and the other is to review these incidents and provide credible and transparent investigations explaining to the public what happened in those instances. So it's more of, you know, CBP is a law enforcement agency, and so this is just sort of a a way of keeping track of um, any incidents that occur, you know, like you mentioned, uh, while people are in custody and things of that nature? Yeah, so I think most people don't realize that U.S. Customs and Border Protection is actually America's largest law enforcement agency with over 40,000 uniformed personnel conducting enforcement operations around the clock in just about every environment you can imagine. Consequently, um, there are going to be instances in which people make allegations that our personnel have fallen short of the um, very high expectations we have for them. And when those instances occur, we investigate them aggressively. Um, if the allegations are not true, then we will you know, uh, clear our employees. And in the instance the allegations are true, we will either take uh, strict uh, administrative action against them or present those cases for prosecution. And in addition to that, because CBP has such a dynamic enforcement mission, there are instances when we have serious incidents involving either enforcement operations or persons in custody. So our highly trained special agents are able to respond to those things on a moment's notice, sometimes at very remote locations, to make sure that we look through those things in a really thorough manner. So the desire is to hire at least 300 more. Um, is there a backlog of investigations that, need, that, are, that has occurred, or um, is there a deficiency? How did the number 300 come about? Yeah, so, so as America's largest law enforcement agency, there's a really strong need for oversight within CBP. And the Department of Homeland Security is one of the newest cabinet agencies within the U.S. government, and U.S. Customs and Border Protection is also a very new agency. And over the 20-year history of our organization, the type of oversight that's been provided has evolved. About six or seven years ago, there became a really clear realization that CBP itself required a very robust oversight mechanism. And so there was a recommendation made by the Homeland Security Advisory Council that CBP's Office of Professional Responsibility be staffed with about 550 special agents. And so our hiring initiative now to bring about 300 additional agents on board will get us to that recommended level that we realized we needed so many years ago. So we feel extremely fortunate to have the confidence and the resources available to be able to really plus up our organization, get ourselves to the place where we're going to be able to provide the type of oversight that's needed. Got it. So it wasn't a a, a case of more responsibilities for CBP and the agency getting larger itself, or did that actually come into play when those recommendations were made? Yeah, so when the initial recommendation was made to plus up our oversight capabilities to 550 special agents back in 2016, 
it did, in fact, take into account the size of the agency. What it did not necessarily take into account are sort of the enhanced expectations around transparency and accountability, which are really being expected of all law enforcement agencies at this point. And so in addition to our traditional internal affairs function of investigating misconduct, whether it be criminal or serious administrative misconduct, we're also using those new positions to provide uh, really aggressive oversight on other types of incidents that might happen, including in-custody deaths, use of force incidents, or other situations that are of concern. Dan Altman is Executive Director of Investigative Operations for the Office of Professional Responsibility at Customs and Border Protection. So let's talk hiring. What methods are you all going to use to fill these openings and who exactly are you looking for? You have an investigative background yourself. Is that the kind of person that you're trying to find? Yeah, so when you're building an investigative organization, diversity is really critical. And I mean diversity in every respect, starting with uh, diversity of perspective, diversity of experience, visual diversity, diversity of language capabilities. And so as we build out this oversight organization, we're trying to use as many different hiring mechanisms as we can to get the most most diverse uh, workforce possible. So starting with trying to use our traditional recruitment met- uh, methods, which would include just vacancy announcements on, U- on OPM's USA Jobs website, but we've also had specific vacancy announcements that are targeting recent college graduates. And most recently, um, CBP has been granted direct hire authority by the Office of Personnel Management, which gives us a lot more agility in terms of how we can recruit for these positions. And so what we're attempting to do is build a workforce that's balanced between people that have worked for CBP and its operational components in the past that have that really critical technical knowledge that we need to be able to successfully conduct our organization, but also bring in people from the outside that have experience conducting homicide investigations, sexual assault investigations, that have experience doing crime scene processing, procurement fraud, or may speak a language or have a certain cultural background that's essential for us to be effective in our operations. And so as we build that workforce out, we're really trying to keep diversity uh, at the forefront. And uh, we're excited about this new direct hire authority. We think it's going to give us the ability to really build that diverse workforce we're looking for. With such a unique mission for CBP, I imagine the the training to investigate CBP officers would require some sort of special training. Uh, what are they looking at if the new hire is onboarded? Yeah, so uh, first of all, all federal criminal investigators will complete the criminal investigator training program at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in Glencoe, Georgia. That's going to give them that basic uh, core criminal investigative skills. And then we supplement that with a six-week OPR special agent training program, which is held at CBP's Advanced Training Center in Harpers Ferry, West Virginia. And during that program, they get advanced training in cognitive interviewing, sexual assault investigations, death investigations, report writing, and other topics that are really essential for them to be successful in their job. And then beyond that, we have special agents that specialize in areas such as, such as protective operations, procurement fraud, crime scene processing. And so those folks will go on for even more advanced training. So some of the folks we've hired in the last 18 months have undergone more than seven or eight months of initial training and advanced training to get them ready to do this job. What can you tell me about a a personnel investigation? I know that investigations differ depending on the allegation made or the crime committed. But, you know, you mentioned the example of internal affairs. Is the relationship between CBP officers and OPR kind of like that? You know, I I imagine that it's not quite as contentious as TV makes it out to be with uh, cop shows. But um, what can you tell me about what goes into these investigations? Yeah, so first and foremost, 
OPR is structurally independent within CBP. So what that means is that our investigative framework falls outside of the chain of command of the operational components that we investigate. And so when we receive an allegation of employee misconduct, um, we would conduct that investigation like any other administrative or criminal investigation. So our special agents will identify what potential violation might have been committed. They will develop an investigative plan to determine whether or not that violation was committed. And ultimately, we'll reach a conclusion as to whether or not we believe that the offense was committed. If we're talking about a criminal violation, we would be consulting with the United States Attorney's Office very early in the investigation. Some investigations are very simple. It just involves conducting a few interviews, reviewing emails, other sorts of documents. And in some investigations that we conduct, such as public corruption investigations, it could involve surveillance, undercover operations, technical operations, and ultimately a fairly complex uh, chain of events that, that would ultimately help us resolve the allegation. Got it. And you mentioned the direct hire. You're hoping that'll speed things up. What kind of timeline are you all looking at? Have you made any hires yet? We're really excited. We're more than halfway through our hiring goal of bringing these new folks on board. And as we've uh, been moving through the process, I think the word is spread about the uh, opportunities at OPR. And so consequently, we're getting a lot of applications now for our positions. And so um, we're really just going through in a very intentional way, making sure that we're picking people that have the right skills and background that we're looking for for our organization. So we're very hopeful that we'll be able to make the majority of the the hiring offers for the new positions in the next uh, several months. Dan Altman is Executive Director of Investigative Operations for the Office of Professional Responsibility at Customs and Border Protection. Speaking with Federal News Network's Eric White. Find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive, and be sure to subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW Colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. 
And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by uh, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. She would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that, and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where 
you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be? One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.